turn again this afternoon to Isaiah, and we'll be looking at chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. We sang just now this song based on these words. And so now let's read the word of our God in Isaiah chapter 2, beginning verse 1 to 5. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law, and the word of the Lord From Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light. Of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together again. Oh God, we come to you in prayer again to recognize and admit our need for you, knowing that as we handle these spiritual things, these things are spiritually discerned, and so we need the help of your Spirit. Lord, we pray that out of here would go forth the law. Out of Zion, out of your church, would go forth the gospel of Christ. We pray that you would help us to hear it, to have within our hearts even now this desire to come into your presence and to walk in your light. We pray, Lord, that you would show us your grace during this time. We would know that we are in your presence. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, imagine an English professor. Uh, This man became an English professor because he, as a young man, discovered great literature, and he loved it, and it opened up his mind to think about all these deep thoughts. He had a English teacher in high school who had a big impact upon him, was a great mentor to him, and so he wanted to become an English professor for those reasons. But now he sits at his desk, and he has spent 45 minutes trying to get his printer to work, to print out all the papers of his students, and he was finally able to get them to print out, and so now he sits there with a giant stack of papers that he dreads grading. He knows half of them are going to be terrible. And 
he's got a meeting coming up with the administration in, a, in an hour or so where they're going to just sit around and talk about the new office policies. And that night, he's got to spend his time off going to a dinner with a donor uh, because part of being a professor is dinners with donors so that they will keep giving money to the university. And so he sits there at his desk depressed. This isn't what he wanted to do with his life, is grade mediocre papers and go to administration meetings. He wanted to read great books and talk to students about great books. So what does this man need to do? Should he quit? Should he give up? Well, what this man needs to do is think about the big picture, to have a a bigger vision of what his job is. He could stop and think, well, I could be doing construction work, and that wouldn't allow me to do the thing that I love. I can't be reading great books while I'm doing construction. And so he could stop and think, well, you know, even though I have to deal with these administrative things and printers that break, the big picture is I get to do what I love. I get to spend time with students and I get to read great books. So in essence, what this man needs is faith. Hebrews 11 verse 1 says, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. He needs to look past the pile of papers in front of him and think about the big picture of what his job is for him. And so I'm not saying he needs to have that, that that's what Christian faith is in that case, but that is what faith is. It's looking past what's in front of you to look at something that you can't see. So with this English professor, we could make an analogy with us and the church. Here you are as a church member. Maybe you've been here a long time, maybe not, but you can experience some difficulties and problems in the church. Uh, Sometimes the church is not always as exciting as you would want it to be. Sometimes you think maybe you could just stay home. And if you just stayed home, you could get your fine roasted coffee and, and brew that up for yourself and drink that on a Sunday morning. You could pick out a sermon by maybe your favorite preacher, Steve Lawson or someone like that. And, and you know Steve Lawson's going to be a thousand times better than any grumbles sermon that you listen to. You can pick out the songs that you want to sing and just pick your favorite songs and sing your favorites all the time. And if you stayed home, you could be taking a nap right now. Two o'clock is your nap time and you could have a nap. And then you wouldn't have to deal with the people. People that maybe frustrate you sometimes. People that might get on your nerves a little bit. So what do you need when all of those thoughts come into your mind? When church isn't as exciting as as you want it to be? Well, you need faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so as I mentioned this morning, we talked about the church militant. What we need is also a vision of the church 
triumphant. We need to look by faith beyond what we see in front of us, beyond the sermons that aren't as good as Steve Lawson's, and look by faith to what the church is going to be, what God puts forward as this great vision of his people. And that's what Isaiah chapter 2 is. That's what verses 1 to 5 do for us. I've been thinking about this in the last few years, and I don't know if I've said it. Uh, I've been here, I think, like 16 months, and so maybe I start repeating myself now. I don't know if I've said this before, but I've been thinking a lot that basically being a Christian is about looking forward. Looking forward. That whatever you're going through, the answer is faith to look forward. Uh, Peter says in 1 Peter 1 verse 13, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that's the Christian life. Set your hope fully. Not partially, but fully. All of your hope is meant to be on something that hasn't happened yet. On grace that is going to be revealed at the coming of Jesus Christ. So when you are discouraged, when you're tired in any area of life, weary, you need to set your hope fully on the future. Look towards heaven. Look towards the glories of Christ that we will experience. When we are struggling with sin, when we are loving the world, why, why does love of the world come upon us? Well, because it's it's because we're not setting our hope fully on grace that is to be revealed. We want stuff now. We want what we want now instead of the future. So being a Christian is about looking to the future. And that's what we need to do when it comes to the church. 1 Corinthians 2.9 No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has in store for those who love him. That's the hope you need to set your mind upon. That's what you need to set your mind upon with the church. So here's what the church will be in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. And so as we go through this passage, we can look at it like this. Here are four reasons to have hope for the church. Four reasons to have hope for the church. This is what you think about when difficulties and struggles and weariness comes in regards to your thinking about the church. Here are four reasons to hope. First, God will establish his reign overall. God will establish his reign. Look again at verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. You remember Isaiah 1? Remember how the cities are left desolate and how Jerusalem is like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field? You remember what we heard this morning about how God, the mighty one, is going to turn her, his hand against her and she's going to be purified and purged. And so Isaiah is preaching a sermon to people who might be looking at Jerusalem desolate. The rocks are, are falling down. 
the mountain is getting destroyed. And so Isaiah says, but here's what's going to happen. That's not the end of the story. That's not the reality of what's happening. It's not the, the low mountain, the, the tiny hill of Jerusalem in front of you that is in ruins. What you need to look at by faith is the mountain of the house of the Lord as the highest of the mountains. Isaiah sees a vision of a great high mountain, just like Ezekiel in chapter 40 sees a great high mountain. And on that mountain, there is a temple. Isaiah says on that mountain, there is the house of the Lord, reference to the temple. It's a reference to the place where God dwells. The highest mountains were where they would build their temples in ancient times, where they would believe that their gods came to dwell among them. They believed that on this mountain, it was the axis of the world. That's what they called it, the axis of the world. So I thought about bringing like a foam ball and sticking a pencil through the ball, but, but you can picture that with your imagination. Here's planet Earth, and here's an axis, a line that goes straight through planet Earth. And in ancient times, they thought that the underworld was under the earth, and then you had the earth where the people are, and then you had the sky, the heavens, where they believed the gods dwelt. And so the gods would come to dwell with man on earth through this holy mountain. And everybody had their holy mountain, Babylon and Assyria, and they believed that's where you go to meet your God. That's where your God comes down. It was the center of their world. And there was a, the rivers that would flow down out of that mountain, giving life to the world as a picture that, that God gives life to the world. And so here's the point. The, the mountain of the house of the Lord is the dwelling place of God with man. It's where God comes and where you can experience being in the presence of God. And so Isaiah says... Sumerians, Egyptians, Assyrians, Babylonians, you all have your mountains with your temples. And you say that your gods live on those mountains. But one day, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be the highest of the mountains. And Isaiah is not making a geographical point. He's making a theological point. Mount Zion in Jerusalem, this Mount Moriah, is 2,500 feet above sea level. That's not a tall mountain. The Mount of Olives right to the east is taller than Mount Moriah. Mount Hermon to the north of Israel is the tallest mountain in Israel. So, so Mount Zion is not physically in itself a tall mountain. And some people, dispensationalists, they think that Miraculously, at the end times, there's going to be this upheaval of tectonic plates and God is going to make Mount Zion, the, the literal physical Jerusalem. It's actually going to be the tallest mountain, taller than Mount Everest or whatever. It's going to be the actual tallest mountain. But Isaiah is not making geological statements here. He's telling us about a theology of God, that God will reign above all other gods. And that this will be established. This will be known. And it will be permanent. That everyone will recognize 
Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel, is the God above all gods and the great king above all gods. Nobody will debate that. Nobody will argue it. Nobody will try to doubt it because everyone will be able to see that the Lord alone is God. So the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the highest of the mountains. So a few things that we can apply to ourselves from verse 2. First of all, notice the draw. The draw in this passage is God. The nations will flow up to this mountain. And why are they flowing there? It's because God is there. It's because this is the mountain of the house of the Lord. God's presence is there. People are drawn to see and to worship God as the king who reigns. Now this is ultimately talking about the future. And in the new heavens and new earth, it will be God and the Lamb who will be on the throne. And the Lamb will be the main attraction of the new heavens and new earth. Everybody will be drawn to see Jesus Christ Kings of the earth will all bow their knee to Jesus Christ, the Lamb, on his throne. But even now, in the church of Christ, as we look forward to being the church triumphant, even as we gather together for worship, this should be the draw. Why do you come to church? The main reason you should come to church is for God. God is here. God makes his presence known among his people. God is the great king above all gods. There are a lot of good things that happen at church. You get to see friends. You get to have fellowship. You like the songs. You like the music. But the main attraction is God. And you want to know God. And you want to be in his presence. A second application for us here is to not despise the day of small things. To not be discouraged when it looks like God is not recognized as the great king. To not be discouraged when so few people come to church and when you see so many people rejecting Christ and rejecting God and not wanting to worship God. We shouldn't be discouraged. We should have hope. Look at the future here. God will establish his mountain as the highest of the mountains. It will happen. Everyone will recognize God as the true God, as the great God. Maybe you know the story in Daniel chapter 2 when Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And Daniel is after Isaiah. And so I think part of this dream is related to Isaiah chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of the statues that all represent different kingdoms. And then Daniel's telling him the dream about how a stone, a, a giant boulder from a mountain comes and destroys the statues. It destroys the kingdoms. And that's, this is what he's saying here. That the kingdom of God is the kingdom that destroys all other kingdoms. 
The kingdom of God is the kingdom that is going to be the one that reigns forever and ever. That mountain will be the highest of the mountains. So right now, the kingdom of God might look like the mustard seed in Jesus' parable. It might look like the, a little rock, but we have faith that it will be the great mountain one day. So God will establish his reign over all. Here's a second reason to have hope, is that all nations will stream to his throne. All nations will come. You see this at the end of verse 2. It says, And all the nations shall flow to it, to the mountain, and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. Now here we have a metaphor of uh, geography, and here we have a metaphor of a river. So remember that in the, the mountains, the rivers flow down from the mountains, and Ezekiel sees the mountain of God with the river flowing from it. But here, Isaiah says nations flow to it. He's using this word flow, and, and in verse 3 when he says come, he's talking about the, the river that goes, but it doesn't go down, it goes up. Rivers don't go up mountains. But nations will flow like a river to God's holy mountain. All nations and millions and billions of people will be flowing to the worship of God and to be in his presence. Maybe you've seen uh, pictures or videos of Mecca and you know that Muslims do the annual pilgrimage or once a year pilgrimage to Mecca. And many people circle the, the Kaaba. And uh, uh, apparently this year is going to be, or it was, I think, in, in the summer, uh, is going to be the, the biggest gathering uh, in history, as far as they know. Two and a half million Muslims were expected to gather at Mecca this past summer. And it's sad when you look at the pictures and you look at the videos if you've watched it. It's sad to just see all of these people there walking in a circle, praying, hoping that this will earn them somehow forgiveness of sins. But you don't need organized religion to get a bunch of crowds. There are other gods and idols that crowds gather to. Uh, there's the biggest stadium in America is in Bristol, Tennessee. It's a NASCAR uh, NASCAR track. That's the word I was looking for. It's a track. And 150,000 people gather. Of course, they do their races on Sundays. So there they are gathered on Sunday. 150,000 people from all over the country to watch cars drive in a circle. And then there's the University of Michigan, which is the biggest football stadium. It holds about 100,000 people where they gather to watch men 
beat up each other and bang into each other and throw a ball. There's MetLife Stadium down the road. And on Sundays, again, people gather from all over to watch men play a sport. This is what the nations do now. The nations go fill stadiums to watch soccer games and the football games, and the nations go to Mecca, and the nations go to the Vatican. But one day, those things, those things will be closed down. One day, all the nations instead will be drawn to the presence of God and to worship Him. This began at Pentecost. There's a partial fulfillment of this in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit falls upon the apostles and Peter stands up and begins begins preaching the gospel. We read in Acts chapter 2 that the Jews from all the nations, from many nations, are, are gathered there in Jerusalem. They're gathered at Jerusalem and Peter stands up and he begins preaching. And Peter says, in the last days it shall be that the Spirit will be poured out upon all flesh. Maybe some of you remember when we went through Joel on, on Zoom long ago, um, and Peter is, is quoting there from Joel chapter 2, the Spirit being poured out, but Peter is also making a reference to Isaiah chapter 2. He quotes directly uh, from Isaiah rather than Joel at the very beginning just the first phrase and I could show you but we can't do that right now but he says it shall come to pass in the latter days this is quoting from Isaiah in the last days it shall be that's a quote from Isaiah so Peter is telling us that not only is it fulfilling what Joel prophesied but it's also partially fulfilling what Isaiah is telling us was going to happen the nations would gather before God, and they would come to worship God and to hear the gospel. And so this is what we're doing now. As churches preach the gospel, as missionaries go out and preach the gospel, the nations are being gathered to worship God in local churches and to be in the presence of God. And one day it's going to be finished, and one day the church will triumph, and one day all the nations will gather around God's throne. So, here's another application for us from verse 3. It's encouraging to know that we're not alone. We might feel like we're alone right now. You might feel like you're the odd one out. You're the oddball. You're the crazy one. You go out into the world and you go to your workplace and, and you're the strange one because you're the Christian. And... It's encouraging to know that one day you will be joined by a throng, a crowd of many nations. And you'll say, I see, I was right. See, they make fun of you because you don't go to MetLife Stadium on Sunday. You choose to worship God instead of going to the football game. They make fun of you. They think you're weird. But on that day, you will be vindicated as the one who was right, as the one who worshiped the real God, the true God. And all the nations will be drawn to the worship 
of God. Islam is supposedly the fastest growing religion in the world. And Muslims are very proud of that. Uh, they love the fact that churches close and they get taken over by mosques, by Islamic centers. Islamic centers are meeting in Voorheesville where there used to be a church. They're very proud of that. It looks with the physical eye as if Islam is the fastest growing religion. But one day, all the nations will not be going to Mecca. They will be drawing, being drawn to the mountain of the Lord to worship our God. The gospel will have its success. So all the nations will stream to the throne. Here's reason number three to have hope. Preaching the gospel is enough. Preaching the gospel is enough. It's all that we need. So again in verse 3, they are coming and they say, Let us go that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So the draw is God. They're there to be in the presence of God. But, but what is it about God? What do they want to get from God? Well, they want to be taught. There, there's a method of communication here. They are being taught the ways of God. They want to learn the ways of God. They want to walk in his paths. And so in order to walk in his paths, for us to obey God, we've got to know what God says. So we have to be taught. So they're being drawn by God and they're being drawn by the teaching about God. It's interesting here that there's no mention of music. It's not music that's drawing them. There's no mention of miraculous signs and wonders. That's the thing about Acts chapter 2 and, and Pentecost. The whole point of Pentecost and the signs and wonders was that they were signs. What is the sign for? It's pointing to the gospel of Christ. And now everybody likes to read Acts chapter 2 and they want their church to have all the signs. But the signs were about Christ. The point is the gospel and the preaching of the gospel. In Acts chapter 2, they were hearing the gospel in their own language. They weren't talking in an angelic language. Peter was just preaching and everybody heard in their own language. So that's the draw is God, and I know God, because the gospel is being preached to me. This is all that we need. We want to be taught about God. We want to learn his ways. We want to be like in Nehemiah chapter 8, when they say to Ezra, bring us the book. Open up the book to us, Ezra. Read the book and tell us what it says so that we can understand what the law of God says. Out of Zion will go forth the law. People want to be taught his ways. Now, if we're interpreting this as ultimately being about the future, the new heavens and the new earth, it does make me wonder, will Jesus Christ be preaching? Will, will we all be drawn every day to say, 
Let's go hear another sermon from our Lord Jesus Christ. Is Christ infinitely just going to be opening up more of himself and who he is and who the triune God is? Is that what we're going to be doing in, in heaven? I, I know I think we'll be doing other things too, but it, will there still be teaching in heaven? I think there probably will be. I think we will be learning from the mind of Christ, learning more and more of his ways. But even still, if we don't have, we're not just thinking about the ultimate fulfillment, we think about how it is now as we are looking forward to that day. This is what the church is also doing. The church has the gospel. The church's job is to teach about God and about his ways. Notice that it says that the law will come out of Zion. Uh, The first law of Moses came out of Mount Sinai. But we're not talking about Mount Sinai here. We're not on that mountain. We're on a different mountain. And so we're on a different mountain and we have a different law. This is not talking about the Jewish law, the law of Moses, and that everyone is going to convert to Judaism and, and want to learn the Mosaic law. No, this is Mount Zion. And even Isaiah chapter 40, we read it earlier this morning. He says, get up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Zion represents the good news. That's the word gospel. Isaiah coined the term gospel. Good news. Sinai represents the law. Zion represents the gospel. Paul makes the same point in Galatians chapter 4. And so when we look here at the law coming out of Zion, what we're really saying is that the gospel is going to be preached out of Zion, the church. Jesus Christ came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And the role of the preacher is to preach Jesus Christ who has fulfilled the law. It's to preach the gospel. That's the role of the church today. Jesus says we're a city set on a hill. We are Jerusalem on the hill. We are the temple on top of the mountain. We are to be drawing all the nations to God. And we do it with the method of preaching the gospel. So here's the encouragements. We will be successful if we use the methods that God has given us. We will be successful as a church. Here's what the church needs: this, this book. This is all we need. We could get rid of all the other stuff here in this room, in this building, but if we have this. And we preach this. God will draw people, his people, to himself. Christ will build his church through the preaching of the gospel. May we say, come, let's go to the mountain of the Lord. When you're tired, when you're discouraged, this is what you put before you. We need to go to the mountain of the Lord. We need, we need to go to Zion because out of Zion comes the law, the preaching of Christ. And, and that's what I need. 
That's what I need when I'm tired. That's what I need when I'm suffering. That's what I need when I'm doubting. That's what I need when I'm trapped by the cares of the world. I need to go back to Zion and hear the gospel preached to me again. Come, let's go to the mountain of the Lord, for from there comes forth the law of Christ. So preaching the gospel is enough. Number four, we see that peace will come. Here's another reason for hope for the church, is that peace will come. Verse 4 says, He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So many of you are probably familiar with this image and you understand what it's trying to say that uh, these instruments of death will be turned into instruments of life. Weapons will be turned into something that produces life. And so the sword is turned into a plowshare so that the plow can then produce a crop and produce a harvest that feeds people and brings life to people. The spears are turned into pruning hooks so that you can tend to the vineyard, so that you can have the grapes and the wine for food and for drink. So you have food and drink here. Instead of devastation and death and war, there is life. And by the way, uh, for people who interpret things ultra-literally, uh, this isn't, this isn't going to work. Because people don't fight wars with swords and spears anymore. They fight with guns and bombs and airplanes. And so if you think that's literally what's going to happen in the last days, well then literally you're saying we're going to go back to fighting with swords. Anyway, so that's just one reason why we don't interpret this ultra-literally. But these are symbols. These are theological points that are being made. And the point here is obvious that instead of war, there will be peace. Uh, remember again from Joel maybe that Joel prophesies about this, but he, he turned it backwards. On the day of judgment, people will beat their plowshares into swords. And uh, I mentioned back then that the United Nations has there as a statue uh, there in New York City in, in their garden of a man who is doing this. He is beating his sword into a plowshare. And so that's supposed to represent the United Nations. The United Nations is supposed to bring peace to the world. And ironically, that statue was made by someone from the Soviet Union. So an atheist and a communist was trying to quote the Bible here. And so we know that peace is not going to come from atheism and United Nations gathering together, but we know peace will come when God reigns on his mountain. Now for us, maybe this isn't all of that relevant. Uh, it's interesting to, for us to think about how, as far as I know, and most of us, we haven't experienced war. And that's a very different from most people throughout history. So you think of Israel, 
And Israel is constantly facing war. Jerusalem is constantly being attacked. It's very hope-giving and comforting for them to, to have this vision of the future of complete peace. They can't even imagine, wow, a day without war. I, I can't imagine that. And here we are for most of us. We haven't been to war. We haven't firsthand experienced the brutalities of, of death and war. We haven't had bombs falling upon our neighborhoods and our houses being destroyed and our family being taken away in war. And so it's hard for us to, to really appreciate this. Of course, we can think about Christians in Ukraine and Christians in Myanmar. And we can think about how encouraging this is for them to think about the day without destruction and war. But we can also think about it in a smaller sense. Our problems are much smaller than what Christians in Myanmar are going through. We can think about it when we think about the church. We can think about the church being a place of complete peace. That's the church triumphant. There will be no divisions on that day in the church triumphant. There will be no problems. There will be no sin, which means that there will be no sins against each other. There will be love in heaven, not just the love of God, but we will all love one another perfectly. We will all always be thinking about the best interests of each other instead of ourselves. All our divisions, all of our conflicts, all of our disagreements, they will one day be completely healed among believers. There will be no denominations. There will be no doctrinal disagreements. We can have perfect unity and be fully of like mind, even with other churches and other denominations who are truly following Christ. So all of that pain of conflict will be gone. That's what we can look forward to. That's what we can look ahead to. And that's what the church should continually be working towards. So here are four reasons for you to hope. God will establish his reign over all. All the nations will stream to the throne. Preaching the gospel is enough for the church. And one day peace will come. So what should you do? Verse 5 says, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is speaking to the church. Verse 5 mentions the house of Jacob. So far, Isaiah has talked about the nations. And now he brings in the house of Jacob. It's as if he's, he's turning to the Israel in front of him and saying, you guys better get, get on with it. You guys better figure this out and, and come and walk in the light of the Lord. But notice We'll get to verse 6 next time. God has rejected the house of Jacob. And so what Isaiah is telling us is 
is yes, God is going to reject the ethnic national Israel and the Gentiles are going to come in. And Isaiah is saying, come on, guys, we all together, Jew and Gentile, as part of the church, need to come together and all stream to the throne. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. We are now the church of Christ looking forward to that day. We need to walk in the light. Remember, Jesus says, those who are in darkness, they hate the light. But those who love the light, they want to walk in the light. Those who love God want to know more of God and follow God and follow his truth. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. And let's encourage each other. Notice the one another's that are happening here. Come. Come. Are you struggling? Are you tired? Do you have reasons to not be happy? Well, well, Put this before you. Come, let's walk together in the light of the Lord. So this is the future vision of the church. This is what you need to think about on Saturday nights. Are you tired on Saturday nights? Are you busy on Saturday nights? Would you just sometimes, you you would like some time for yourself, but you know you got to, Get a crock pot ready for the next day. This is what you need to put before you on a Saturday night. This is what you need to put before yourself on the Sunday morning when you are laying in bed and maybe there is part of you that just wants a little bit extra sleep. This is what you need to put before you at at 2 o'clock when you start to think, oh man, I'm really tired. Maybe I I just, I really need a nap. I'm just going to go home. But put before you this vision of the church and the gospel. When you interact with people and they frustrate you, this is what you put before yourself. This day when there will be peace. When you sit through a sermon and you think, yeah, uh, I could have listened to a better sermon on the internet. This is what you put before yourself. When you wonder why nobody cares about you sharing the gospel with them and they reject you and you get discouraged about the church and you say, well, why aren't people coming to faith in Christ? Why don't we see people being baptized? You put this vision before you. On Wednesday nights, when you've worked a long day and you're tired and you just want some time to yourself, This is what you put before yourself. This is why we pray. This is why we gather for prayer. It's because through our prayers and through the preaching of the gospel, this is what's happening. This is what it's going to all come to fruition to one day. It requires faith to not look at what we see, to not look at the lives that we're living day to day, but to look ahead. So we press on. May God give us grace to press on to this future. Let's pray. Our God, we do praise you. And we thank you for 
the glorious vision that you have before us. We thank you that you are the great God and that you have called us and drawn us to yourself. We pray that in this time before we experience the triumph of the church, that your Holy Spirit would renew our vision and give us eyes to see spiritual things that they are spiritually discerned. We pray that by your grace you would keep us and help us to keep fighting the good fight of faith, looking forward to this day. And that you would bring us there, that one day our faith will be sight. So we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would come. Come make all things new. Come establish your kingdom. Pray in your name.